Every day in American courtrooms, forensic science offers evidence to judges and juries, fingerprints, ballistics, shoe prints, even bite marks. It's supposed to provide scientific proof of guilt. But what if it's a lot less reliable than we think? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your all-around justice nerd and your personal guide to all of the criminal legal space. And, I know, hard to believe, still somehow employed in that incredibly great day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Put yourself back a few years, say 2015 or 2010, or even as far back as 2000. In any of those years, you could watch as one of the many different casts of the CBS drama CSI Crime Scene Investigation hit the streets in, well, it could have been different places given the many versions of the series, Vegas, Miami, New York, solving murders through the use of forensic science. These television crime fighters might be just as likely to use lab equipment and high-tech science as handcuffs and the proverbial shoe leather to figure out what happened and who did it. It was the combination of old-fashioned police work with the rigors of science that set the tone. Some bad guys could get away from the cop with the badge, but there was no escaping the scientist with the microscope. These series were incredibly popular, running in one iteration or another for 15 years. In one stretch, these shows were among the highest rated on television for 10 straight years. They gave Americans and, frankly, other people around the world such a rigorous education in forensics that police and prosecutors in the U.S. complained that they had to cope with, quote, the CSI effect. They couldn't persuade jurors to convict unless they showed that they had used every possible forensic technique or explained to the jurors why they had not even if those techniques had no application at all. There was one problem with this nationwide forensic academy we were all attending. Most of it was highly misleading. Now, I'm not talking about the stuff that the writers of the show just made up, the technology that didn't really exist, or even the results that the CSI cops obtained from tests that no forensic scientist would ever even attempt. I'm talking about the basics, the things taken for granted and that actually do show up in real courtrooms. Fingerprint identification, ballistics comparisons, that sort of thing. Some of those things which real judges and jurors in real cases would actually encounter, it turns out they stand on incredibly shaky foundations, not real scientific proof. And sometimes, even with methods of testing that are well-established, like testing substances to see if they are illegal drugs or not, there are problems of outright fraud. 
Now, these scandals of outright fraud are incredibly damaging. In April of 2021, more than eight years after a huge scandal was uncovered in a Massachusetts crime lab, the county district attorney announced that her office will consider tossing out tens of thousands of convictions. Listen to that, tens of thousands. But even absent a scandal, it turns out that this work, forensic science, sending people to prison day in and day out, based on a fingerprint, a ballistics test. This stuff isn't, has never been, all it's cracked up to be. It's not really science at all in the full sense of that term. Example, Brandon Mayfield, a lawyer in Portland, Oregon, arrested in the case of the 2004 Al-Qaeda bombings of 10 commuter trains in Madrid, Spain, that killed almost 200 people and wounded thousands more. He was arrested on the strength of the FBI's, quote, 100% match of his fingerprint to a print found amongst the bombing materials in Spain. Listen to this audio from CBS Sunday Morning from 2004. Mayfield was arrested after this smudged partial print found on a bag of detonators was matched to his, not by one FBI examiner, but three. I honestly felt like I was being framed because I, I hadn't been out of the country for over 10 years. Two weeks after Mayfield's arrest, Spanish investigators found the man to whom the fingerprint really belonged. It turns out a partial distorted print, like the one the FBI had, often yields multiple potential matches. In fact, when the Madrid print was put into the government's automated system, 20 prints with similarities came up, including Mayfield's. After the first FBI examiner mistakenly matched the print to Mayfield, the other two confirmed it. Brandon Mayfield received a public apology from the FBI, along with a $2 million legal settlement. So, fingerprint evidence, the gold standard. Not so perfect, it turns out. Yet even then, in that same report from which we took that audio from CBS, the supervisor of the FBI's fingerprint computer database operation was still willing to say it was accurate nearly 100% of the time. It turns out that that statement, that just shouldn't be said in the sense that at the very least, there's simply no way that that gentleman can justifiably say it. Even today, 17 years after the Mayfield debacle, no data support what he says. Something is quite wrong here. And on this episode, we've got just the guy to tell us what's what. Brandon Garrett is the L. Neal Williams Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law, where he directs the Wilson Center for Science and Justice. He's been an outspoken voice and a prolific scholar for years on the causes of wrongful convictions, among many other issues. He's been a guest here on Criminal Injustice before to speak about the slow death of the death penalty in episode 66. He's here today to discuss his new book, 
Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics, published in 2021 by University of California Press. We've got a link to the book up on our website. Brandon Garrett, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back. What episode are we on now? It's We're way up in the 130s, pal. Oh, that's fantastic. So Here we are. I'm glad to have you back. Um, so let's start by going all the way back to the beginning. It's always good to have a nice, clear definition of what we're talking about. Sure. So uh, your book is about the flaws in forensic science. And so what does forensic science include? What is that? How is that word defined to you? What does it mean? So what I'm talking about in the book is basically evidence introduced in criminal cases and evidence that is presented by by expert witnesses, so expert evidence. Um, for example, uh, folks who work at crime labs would bridle at the idea that a dog scent identification was forensic evidence, even though it is a police officer using an instrument, the dog, to identify someone. Um, but the, the main focus is on um, a lot of evidence that people think of as like the core of forensics. So any given crime lab probably does about half of its work testing drugs. Given the war on drugs, there's a lot of seized mm -hmm. controlled substances that are tested. Yes. And so that, that may be about half of what a lab does. Identifying substances, uh, some you know DUI, blood testing for alcohol, and then testing drugs. The other half of a crime lab, or sort of a typical crime lab, will involve trying to connect evidence with individuals. A big chunk of that will be uh, looking at latent fingerprints. And although fingerprinting has been around for a hundred years, like criminals still don't wear gloves necessarily. And people leave fingerprints all over. There'll be, uh, since there's so many crimes that involve firearms in this country, there'll be quite a bit of firearms and tool mark comparison and maybe some hair and fiber and other types of things. And then maybe like four or 5% of what a lab does will be DNA testing. But a lot right. of it is not DNA testing, a lot of drugs and a lot of pattern evidence where they're looking at patterns on fingerprints or patterns that are made by firearms and other tools. So it's a lot of what we would think of as very regular kinds of lab work, like identifying substances, like fingerprints, like ballistics slash tool marks, sort of the same thing there. You mentioned that fingerprints have been around a long time and it's over a hundred years. Where did this stuff come from? I mean, is it a, is it a product of what we think of as science or is it it didn't have its origins in something else. Yeah, so in general, some forensics had their origins in research science and some did not. DNA testing did. And you know, everyone knew in the 1980s that there was going to be a multi-billion dollar industry based on genetics, whether it's uh, you know, medicines that are tailored to people's genetics, to solving uh, illnesses that are the mm -hmm. result of genetic conditions. So a lot of money was invested in the research enterprise surrounding genetics, decoding the genome, that kind of thing. Um, so DNA did not obviously was not invented in a crime lab. Um, same thing with uh, you know the the testing of to identify drugs. Um, you know those are based on different chemical assays and the equipment used to you know break apart substances and test what their chemical components are. It's not like police invented that. But fingerprinting, looking at firearms, looking at hair, tool marks, bite mark comparisons, all, all these techniques that look at patterns and people are looking at them visually and making comparisons and deciding whether it's a match or an identification, that were kind of involved in, you know, 
crime labs early on. These were just kind of rooms in the basement of a police station or a you know abandoned room in the FBI headquarters, which became the first big crime lab in the United States. But it began pretty humbly with just some you know law enforcement on desk duty assigned to look at stuff that they collected at crime scenes. And so yeah, th- there was never any any particular interest of scientists in this kind of stuff. It wasn't the kind of problem that researchers had any real background in. And and so it, it, it developed outside of science. And yet it sometimes gets called forensic science. And over time, these labs began to look like more like real labs where you had people in white coats doing work that they described as scientific, but without any of the research or any of the structure of a, of a regular scientific laboratory. Well, that and that really brings up, I think, a very important point. You, you use the term in the book, uh, the, the idea of validation. And validation plays this important role when we talk about science. What is validation? And for the, the routine kinds of forensics, like a comparison of fingerprints, like a comparison of the marks on a bullet casing or mm-hmm. uh, taken from a firearm, does validation play a role in those things or is it missing? So one basic hallmark of science is you want to know whether something is true or not based on studying it and testing it. And you test it. There are different ways of testing something. The test needs to be appropriate to the, to the task. Uh, but you know, we would never, for example, permit a COVID test to be used unless we had subjected the test to testing. And there was lots of concern early on about it. I remember enzyme tests and, you know, Mm -hmm. the false positives, false negatives. Should we be using this test? Because we don't want people thinking that they have COVID and quarantining themselves for weeks for no reason. We also don't want people to think that they're scot-free and continuing to, you know, interact with vulnerable family members when in fact they they have COVID. So there's lots of attention paid to just how accurate is this test? And we should not be relying on it uh, because the stakes are high unless we know that it works. And then their questions, well, how do you test it? Do you blind test it? And when in what populations and what's the population size to get good statistics that you know that something is reliable? Uh, well, none of that has been done uh, for the lion's share of traditional forensics. And you never had peer-reviewed publications. You never had controlled testing. Uh, you never had any information about, well, like what percentage of the population has this combination of features on their fingerprint? Or uh, how often do you know, cartridge cases that have scratch marks that line up really come from the same gun versus not. Uh, None of that testing was done. There was never any kind of scientific approach. And part of the reason was, and we can talk about it more, is that the judges didn't ask that it be real science. They figured it's sort of applied in its criminal cases and whatever. Uh, And But a part of the reason was cultural, that this came out of law enforcement. And a lot of the attitude had been like, we're just like, we're dealing with crime scenes. We're dealing with ugly stuff. We're dealing with blood and guts and guns. And this isn't like a controlled lab. We can't do uh-huh. experiments. You know, we don't need these pointy headed PhDs to show us what to do with like really, really challenging crime scene work where we just need to do the best we can uh, to try to bring criminals to justice. And by the way, we have experience. We've been looking at fingerprints. We've been looking at cartridge casings for over a hundred years. That's our test. Or the test is that we've been using it for a long time and it's worked out well. Yeah. And you know, that, that is so important to keep in mind that that's what substitutes 
for this idea of scientific validation through hypothesis testing and so forth, the way we would do in regular science. And so when you talk about flaws in forensics, of course, I think a lot of people think about some of these scandals that have erupted in various labs around the country. Uh, the, the enormous one in the state of Massachusetts in which uh, uh, tens of thousands of cases are going to be thrown out, but you know, not by any means the only one where, where somebody is basically corrupt. They're not doing the testing. They're faking it or something like that. But you're actually in the book, for the most part, you're pointing at something else. You're saying that even when it's done, even when the fingerprinting uh, the fingerprint identification is done. These are these can be seriously flawed as practices, and that yeah. idea that we have experience, you should just trust us, isn't really enough. I mean, who who would go to, you know, a hospital if they just said like we're good at doing stuff with patients, just trust us? I mean, it would be nice to actually hear like, well, what is the record? What are the death rates at this hospital? If the hospital said, oh, we don't collect data on death rates. We don't collect data on how many patients like walk out of the building that walk in, you know, that's just, that's not a thing we do. We're not required to. And of course they would be required to, you know, there's a, a lab that gives you a strep test, right? They're subjected to blind testing. Like if they're, if they're throwing out the samples, that's terrible misconduct. And we've had, you know, in Massachusetts, you know, district attorneys are now reopening tens of thousands more cases because the, the lab chemists were using the drugs and not actually testing them. That was really right. serious misconduct. But you don't catch really serious misconduct like that if you have a lab that isn't actually auditing or having quality control and you have the same problems. Well, okay, what if it's not junk science? What if it's not bite mark comparisons or something that we think may be just wholly unreliable? What if it's something like fingerprinting or firearms where there may be quite a bit of information that you can do something with? Well, how good does that work? Is it enough for an expert just to say, well, I'm, I'm an expert because I'm good at being expert. That's, that wouldn't be enough if you were testing people for strep. That wouldn't be enough if uh, it was a medical laboratory, clinical laboratory, but in crime labs, it's, it's been anything goes for many, many years where the best we have, the best is typically accreditation where their, their procedures are looked at by an accrediting agency, but none of like the site visits, the auditing that you'd have if it was, if it was a, a real scientific lab. So it doesn't work the way medical science does, or even science around engineering or things like that, where we have to have a level of precision and compliance with standards in order to trust it. Yeah. And it's not just having a good technique. It's, well, what do they do with it? What conclusions do they reach? How good are they at reaching conclusions with their method? To give one example, like toothpaste in this country. Okay, so toothpaste, toothpaste. toothpaste. <laughs> we, we put more science into toothpaste than we do into our crime labs. And uh, toothpaste is not FDA approved, uh, but the active ingredients are. And so there was scientific vetting and an approval process with the active ingredients that are often in toothpaste. But then actually turning those active ingredients into a paste that goes in people's mouths, like the American Dental Association has a serious accrediting body that approves it and they test out the different uses of it. They wanna know like, okay, well, is it, is it okay if five-year-olds use it? What happens if you don't brush every day? Uh, what happens if the tube gets caught? Or, you know, they, they wanna look very carefully at the label and what are, what are the warnings given on the label? What are people told about how to use this toothpaste? They look at all of that. And if the ingredients change in any way that they have, they have to go through the whole approval process again to vet the toothpaste. Uh, that's what we put into toothpaste in this society. We don't do that in forensics. 
uh, there's no one looking at, well, how, what, what, even if the technique is good, but fingerprinting does involve looking at sometimes highly detailed objects. Well, what, what, what is the text put in the reports? How are conclusions reported? What is conveyed in court about the technique? None of that in terms of the application of the method, none of that is vetted either. And so, you know, top to bottom, it's just been anything goes. Uh, and, uh, and that's why in the book, I really want people to focus on some of the evidence that we think of as the most powerful. I mean, fingerprinting, it's almost like a metaphor for human individuality and uniqueness. Well, right, yeah. exactly. I remember when DNA came on the scene, we were to, to, to give it its power, we yeah. called it DNA fingerprinting. DNA fingerprinting. Maybe DNA will be as good as fingerprinting, you know. Someday. Yeah, someday. Uh -huh. uh, or, you know, the, that person's fingerprints are all over it. It's sort of like a metaphor for a, your individual stamp on something. Absolutely. Uh, so, so take fingerprinting and let's take it apart. What is it missing that it would have if it were real rigorous science? So we would need to know something about... So I walked through some of the assumptions baked into fingerprinting. A lot of people think a fingerprint match, like a fingerprint is unique. And therefore, if a fingerprint matches, that means it, it came from me or come, came from you. Like you can tell who the person is to the exclusion of everyone else in the world that left that print. Um, I think one way to explain that the step one problem is the step one assumption is, well, first it's, is every fingerprint really unique? And we don't really know. There's never been studies. Um, like snowflakes turn out not to be totally unique because they form in the same way. They're crystals. And so there may be a lot of differences between a lot of snow, snowflakes, but some, some really, you can't tell the difference between them because they do form in, according to a, a pattern because they're symmetrical, they're crystals. Well, fingerprints, maybe the comp pattern is more complicated, uh, but we don't know. Um, but let's just assume like it's incredibly rare for a fingerprint to really have right. no differences between another one. That's fair. Mm -hmm. but the, and that's fair. Uh, the differences may be at a pretty small level and the differences may not appear on all the parts. Like the question may be like, well, how about one-tenth of the fingerprint? How often is one-tenth of your fingerprint? Maybe a part was just a bunch of straight lines all going in the same direction. How often does that look like someone else's one-tenth of their fingerprint? And from maybe from a different finger too, but you don't know what finger the robber used or whatever when they touched the doorknob. Uh, and we know that from, if those of you who are listening have had iPhones that open with a fingerprint, they've you know, the, the smartphone makers turned away from fingerprinting because it is, it's like less than a 10th. There's just a little finger reader spot and it only captures a partial print. And because of that, we've all experienced the frustration of not being able to open our own phone with our own finger. Uh -huh. if your fingers are a little wet or also if it's just not placed on the center, like a partial print could look really different from um, its image of your entire finger. Uh, but also a little piece of your fingerprint might look a lot like a little piece of someone else's. Plus you imagine, okay, there's a little piece of your print and lots of stuff is missing because you're not intentionally rolling your print if you're committing a crime in a way where you're trying to leave a perfect, neat image. And then when police pick up, lift the print, the, the dust and stuff will, will, will scour things up. And they'll be, yeah, or not maybe not intentional, but there'll be tons of stuff missing. And so a smudgy, ugly looking print, how often does a part of your print smudged and distorted look a lot like a smudged print from someone else? We have no idea. And, and, there, and so there are often leaps that the examiner has to make when they're interpreting this smudge thing compared to a really perfect print that I left when I applied for a job or because I got arrested and I left you know, a 10 print card where I neatly rolled the prints. How often does a smudgy thing look like that? 
you know, supposedly any difference means, oh no, it couldn't have been that person's print, but they'll often say, well, there's some differences here, but that's because that part was distorted and smudged and we just can't tell what's going on there. And tons of the time it's also smudged that they really aren't sure they can do anything with it at all. But how often do they, in making those sort of subjective connections, like, well, if you count the parts that are clear, those parts look mostly alike. Um, we have no idea how accurate they are in doing that. And those studies simply haven't been done. How often they get it wrong by saying it matches, how often they get it wrong by saying it doesn't match, how often they get it wrong by saying, oh, it's too smudged, I can't do anything with it. When right. in fact, there's enough information there to, and, and so until recently, no one had even tested these people. How often do they correctly connect prints or not? And what do we know about that? You know, the process is they would say, well, you, you can't study our process because it's based on our training and experience. It's not, we're not measuring anything in particular. We're not just counting points. We can't even say what we're looking at. It's just, it's in our head and it's based on our strong experience of looking at thousands and thousands of prints. Well, okay, like we consult experts, uh, but you know, if a doctor says, I've seen thousands and thousands of patients, I've replaced all of their hips and it's gone great. Well, you kind of want to know, like how often did those hip replacements fail? <laughs> yes. Like you wouldn't just trust the doctors saying like, oh yeah, I've done this thousands of times, no problem. Uh, uh, but been in fingerprinting, that's kind of, and, and you, there's a way of knowing, right? If, if the patient's hip fails, they come back to the doctor. Like they made in, they made need serious rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. Like it, um, if patients are dying on the table or, or if the medication doesn't work and so you, you call the doctor back and you're like, your diagnosis was wrong. And I know it, I don't feel better. Like you need to do something different, but in forensics so often, if they, if they say the fingerprints are a match, the person's going to be convicted. And, and no one else is going to look at that work. No one's looking over the person's shoulder. There isn't going to be an independent re-examination. You have no idea whether they have contributed to wrongful convictions or, or correctly connected evidence. Yeah. So the two things that, that, that stand out to me in, in what you just said are the sort of interpretive nature of how the forensic examiner is calling match or no match. It is based on human interpretation. And they don't have any data that would allow them to state what their error rate is so that we know how much to trust it. Yeah. And well, you also don't even know like, okay, so you say that's a match or they don't use that word much anymore. It's a source identification. Does that mean that no one else in the world could have left that print? Does it mean that a million other people could have left it? Does it mean that 10 other people? They can't say. Uh, like how many, with DNA, there's a, there's a population frequency, like one in a billion people would randomly be expected to share these characteristics, this DNA profile, uh, or one in a hundred million or one in 10,000. There's a calculation with blood typing. You know, it's like whatever it is, you know, 40% of the population is a type O uh, versus a type A or a type B or a type AB. Like there's a percentage associated with it. But with a lot of these comparisons, you know, how many other people might have hairs that are similar? Is it a million? Is it a thousand? Is it a hundred thousand? No idea. All I can right. say is it's a match. Right. So is this the common set of problems for the other main traditional forensic disciplines, like let's say ballistics comparing uh, shell casings or the marks put onto uh, a projectile by a rifle barrel? Same. Are we looking at the same kinds of issues for ballistics? Yeah. The same kind of issues for all these techniques. Um, now it may very well be that some of these techniques involve better information and more reliable information. Uh, it may also be that some of these experts are better than the others. 
we, we don't know, like maybe getting some training really helps you work well with firearms and work well with fingerprints. It also might be true that after enough years of doing it, you're so, you know, you've been looking at screens, looking at firearms or fingerprints all day, you get burned out. We, we have no idea. Uh, there is some sense though, that in some of these fields, they're looking at such poor quality information that there may be no there there, that it may be so unreliable that we shouldn't use it in court. And we need to know that, uh, you know, some of the bite mark studies suggest that it's not even clear whether examiners can reliably tell that a bite was a human bite, as opposed to any, if you're looking at a dead body, there's all kinds of abrasions and contusions and decay or horrible things happen to the human body when someone is murdered. And that's often you know, the situation in which bite marks are in, are in play. And there's, it's not clear that there's much reliability even in the preliminary question, was this a human bite and not something else? I mean, there've been exonerations where it turns out later that we learned that it was insect bites and there was no you know, macabre situation where there's a, you know, a killer that was biting the body. It, did, it actually didn't happen. Um, and, and, and that said, you know, for plenty of these techniques, there may be some uses that are more reliable. You know, for example, in firearms, it can be very helpful to know just, and this is more of just like a regular measurement, like what's the width of the bullet? Like what, what, what was the caliber of the gun that shot this thing? Right. Maybe you can't say it was this gun to the exclusion of all others, but knowing something about the type of gun and the caliber, really, really helpful. And you can exclude a lot of guns. Right. You can you narrow know. it down. You can narrow it down. Uh, you know, hair comparison for years, there was this testimony and the FBI apologized for it, did a huge audit. They basically gave the impression that we, we can link hairs. We can do a hair match. Um, not and, true. Uh, and it's not true, but that doesn't mean you don't look at the hairs from a crime scene. You can exclude lots of subjects. Like if it's a long blonde hair, it definitely couldn't come from me because my hair is short graying and otherwise will go up black and curly. Uh, and so, you know, long blonde hair couldn't have come from me. You can exclude me reliably. The problem is if you, if you have a short graying curly hair, well, is it, did it come from me or any number of other guys with similar short graying curly hair? Uh, who knows? We, we, we can't answer that question, but you know, and same, you know, if it's a fingerprint and it has a arch shape, uh, if all I have are whorls, you can exclude me. But can you say which of the people with arches and these types of ridge patterns made a print? Well, maybe you could say something, you can note similarities, but you can't say something as definitive as what they, they, they currently do. Um, so there, right. you know, the, the, there is a challenge though, because if, if these examiners were more cautious, if they just came into court and said, look, there are a lot of similarities between these shell casings, but I can't tell you whether it's this shotgun or a million other shotguns of the same caliber. Uh, all I can say, you know, is that this gun could have been the one and I can't exclude it. That might be accurate. Will the jury listen to that and say, oh, ballistics, that stuff is super accurate. That's a match. Right. Or will they understand that? <laughs> no, it could have been any, any shotgun of that caliber. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, Yes. Been, I've been doing jury studies. It does sound like actually people are really attentive to this. People don't, you know, this is not a country where people blindly trust science or people blindly trust experts. And so what I have seen is that like, if you do, if you do convey the evidence in a careful way and address these questions, how good is your match? How good is your evidence? How good are you as an expert? Jurors will pick up on that because they really do want to know how strong is this stuff. And it's not like just because, you know, you work at a crime lab, people assume that everything you say is gospel. Let's take a quick break here. Our guest is Brandon Garrett, professor at Duke Law School. His new book is called Autopsy of a Crime Lab, and we're learning a lot about why these uh, 
uh, forensic sciences are maybe not all we thought. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, it's Criminal Injustice. Our guest is Brandon Garrett. He is a professor at Duke's Law School, uh, and he is also the author of a brand new book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, and we're talking about the flaws in forensic science. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about some of the, 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 the real basic flaws in basic traditional forensics. And one thing you mentioned earlier, Brandon, I really want to come back to, you talked about judges and the roles that judges can play. Uh, I know that you and I have been teaching law for a long time, and uh, we talk sometimes about the uh, the Daubert standard, where, where the judge is the gatekeeper. The judge is supposed to keep bogus science out of the courtroom. Um, judges do seem to uh, um, uh, uh, seem to uh, deserve some of the blame here for the acceptance of science that is not really science and isn't actually all that solid. What should they be doing more than they are now? What should they be doing differently as judges when it comes to forensic science? Yeah, so unfortunately, for decades and decades, we've had forensic scientists come into court and say, you know, we, we've confined an ID based on our experience and our training. Um, and, and without being able to cite studies or statistics or to show how reliable their work is, um, judges haven't demanded anything different. And judges have sort of hook, line and sinker bought the idea that, well, you know, experience is experience. That's good enough for us the error rate in this discipline must be very low because we haven't heard about any errors. That's not true anymore. We've had people exonerated by DNA and other types of evidence who have spent decades sometimes in prison because of false fingerprint matches, false bite mark matches, false hair testimony. And there's this growing body. In my early work, I was documenting DNA exonerations and the role that that invalid forensic science, that exaggerated, concealed forensic science played. Yes. We, we know how badly these errors can turn out for, for innocent people. Um, and, and it's not always just convictions. You know, I talk in my book about the Brandon Mayfield case, who was mm-hmm. accused of terrorism, arrested, and detained pre-trial uh, for, for weeks because of an erroneous fingerprint connection. And you know, we, we have very little idea how many people are just detained pre-trial based on false fin- forensic results. So the human costs are really, really real. Judges increasingly are aware of them and are aware of the scientific critiques of these forensics. But for the most part, the response has not been tighter scrutiny. And there are a bunch of reasons why. Um, judges are supposed to be looking at the reliability of expert evidence in a new way in, in, in most jurisdictions in the U.S. following the Daubert decision uh, in which in 1993, in which the Supreme Court said that, look, you, you can't just let evidence in because um, because you're accustomed to, and for at least new scientific evidence, you're supposed to look at it just in terms of general acceptance in the regular community. That was the, the older test that many states followed, although many states also, you know, would just sort of let in evidence based on judicial notice that right. we've let we've it been in doing before. It forever. Yeah. We've been doing it forever. Yeah. So Daubert comes in and, and the federal rule 702 for expert evidence has changed to reflect the idea that you're supposed to do a reliability inquiry. It doesn't matter how long it's been coming into court. 
doesn't matter what people in the field say, you need some objective evidence that, that this is actual science and that it works. Peer review or studies, it's sort of flexible on what that evidence would consist in. But the idea is that there should be a reliability test. And, and not only that, but the, the evidentiary rule says you don't just look at how good the method is, but you look at how reliable the expert's work was in this case. How reliably did they apply the method to the facts? Um, and, and, and many states adopted that rule. And yet you still see that, well, you know, lawyers say, okay, now you have a reliability rule. Well, let's talk about the reliability of firearms or fingerprinting. And judges will often say in response, ah, well, you know, as judges, we follow precedent. And so we have opinions going back decades saying that this evidence is admissible. So we don't need to look at the new rule. Of course, the law changed. The judges should be applying the new law, not looking yes. at old cases. But they, they often just let it in based on old cases. Or more sophisticated judges have talked about the studies and they've said, oh, well, you know, national scientific groups have set, raised concerns about these forensics. Um, but, you know, we're just not sure that our role uh, should uh, demand too much in the way of looking at these things too carefully. Uh, we expect that if there are scientific limitations to this method, the defense lawyers can bring that out in front of the jurors and their questioning of the witness. And that, that should be good enough. In a few areas, judges have said, well, we actually are pretty worried that this forensics is being presented in a misleading way. So, you know what, we're going to say the expert can't say it's a definitive match or an ID. They can say it, it was a we can connect the evidence to a reasonable scientific certainty. Uh, and, and, you know, I've done some jury studies. Like that language doesn't matter. Jurors don't know what that means. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, and so that, that's pretty ineffectual as well. Mm -hmm. but, but even more troubling, you know, judges also really leave a defense case. And they leave the, the, the defense lawyer with like both hands tied behind their back. Um, if the defense says, well, you know, fine. So you're going to let this crime lab expert testify, even though we don't know how good their method is. But, you know, I can understand as a judge, you're not going to like require the world to conduct more scientific research. What are you supposed to do if the, the research just hasn't been done? Well, judge, give me funds to hire my own expert to look at this evidence. If we don't know how good this expert is, well, we want our own expert to take a look at it. Judges have normally said, especially in the state courts where there's less funding and fewer resources. No, if you're poor and you can't afford your own expert, too bad. You know, it's science. Well, having one scientist is enough. Uh, what if the defense says, well, fine, I want to know, well, like, what did this person do? What's the documentation? What are the records? What are the bench notes? Like, what do they measure? What do they mark? How long did it take? What did they do? All I have is this one-page report which says, I've looked at the shotgun you know, casings. I conclude that it's an identification. And maybe like a one-line report. When they've asked for those underlying documents and discovery, judges have often said, oh, that's not relevant. You don't get it. Yeah. So yeah. You know, the defense is almost wholly in the dark. Yeah. And, so even when the defense is asking for all of that, the judges do not necessarily go along with those requests, don't support the requests for funding of counter experts or new or, or, or other opinions. Are defense lawyers actually doing that enough or do they bear some of the blame too? Well, certainly defense lawyers often are not asking for all of this and you know, even in wrongful conviction cases where I read the trial records and there are manifest errors made on the record, defense normally wouldn't even ask a question about it. But, you know, most defense lawyers are like me. You know, I didn't have any, I never took statistics. I had no background in science. I became a <laughs> yes. lawyer because I liked words and not numbers. And yes, um, I don't know here. what research is. Like there's a, a basic scientific literacy challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if the experts themselves aren't explaining and they, they go, why would they? talk about the lack of scientific underpinnings in their work. 
if they're not educating the lawyers, how are the lawyers supposed to educate themselves? You know, in some ways, like, why should the lawyer have to be a scientist? They should be able to get their own scientist, hire their own expert. But also lawyers, you know, defense lawyers can become understandably beleaguered where if they try to challenge the evidence, and the judge says, what? You know, we've been letting fingerprints in for 100 years. I don't want to hear it. Uh, judges don't even have to have a hearing. So at some point, like, are you just going to stop asking if you know that the judges are going to laugh at you and, uh, and do nothing about it? You know, what, what are you supposed to do? Um, and so people have asked, you know, when you have like entire crime labs collapse, you know, like in states where the drug testing was, mm -hmm. was falsified for years, like where were the defense lawyers? Why didn't they uncover this? What were they doing about it? This lab was a shambles. And maybe the prosecutors didn't want to ask questions because they wanted to convict. But where was the defense? Well, the defense may have been in the dark the entire time. They never saw any meaningful lab reports. They never got their own experts to test the evidence. And they couldn't because the judges wouldn't allow it. And so, you know, it's uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of passing the buck going along. The labs right. can say, we don't have to do the research. Judges aren't asking us to do fancy research. We don't have to do quality controls. Judges aren't requiring us to do quality controls. You know, we don't have to have extensive lab reports. No one's asking for that. Well, when the defense lawyers ask for it, the judges are saying, well, you don't get it. And uh, everyone is sort of abstaining from doing anything about this problem. So, you know, we, I think we need lawmakers to step in. Um, and what because, should lawmakers do? I mean, you've you yeah. said one right there. You've said we've got to have required quality control testing on a regular basis of all of our crime labs. What else would you like to see lawmakers do? So, yeah, we need. Um, so. Clinical laboratories are regulated and they, they can't just sort of say, oh, yeah, we'll just test for, do cancer screening however we want based on our experience and judgment. Um, you know, there's routine testing to find out how good people are at a clinical lab in detecting cancer. And so some of the work that they do is secretly a test and, and you get good data out of that. Plus there are site visits and other types of quality controls. We need that for crime laboratories. And, and, and uh, that way we would learn about error rates for these methods, but we'd also learn if there's a, a particular examiner that just has poor eyesight or poor judgment and isn't doing work well, or if there are breakdowns in the process where you know, the machines are contaminated, so they're all issuing the same reading, and it's not because every item that they test is, is cocaine, but it's because the machine is contaminated. You know, we just need to test every aspect of the process. It takes money to do that. So you need regulation and you need resources to actually pay for the quality control that we need. Um, that might cause you know, police to have to be more careful about the stuff they demand tests for and not overload labs with, with testing that isn't needed. Uh, but but if we if we don't want disasters, you know they, they've spent thirty million dollars so far to to reopen cases in Massachusetts. You know we we pay for these errors later when we don't right pay now pay later. Yeah, that's right. So as you look forward, there are new technologies on the horizon. Uh, you know we think I think first of facial recognition, and with something like that, uh, and with your experience and your deep knowledge of forensics, what are you thinking as that begins to make appearances in court or new other new scientific techniques? Yeah, so we've talked about a problem with like black box examiners where they can't say what they're doing. Like, what are you measuring? Uh, you know, what is your technique? Well, it's based on my judgment. And, you know, I, I look at stuff and I make connections and I say whether it's a source identification or not. And that's a problem. We need to know how good the human examiner is. Same problem with algorithms. If we have an algorithm that's testing evidence, we need to know how good it is. 
And we don't necessarily need to know how it works or what the machine learning is doing, but we need to know how often it incorrectly connects evidence or fails to connect evidence or can't reach a result when there should have been a result reached. And unfortunately, just like with the willingness to you know, hire forensic examiners just based on you know, their experience and not knowing how good they are, um, we've had law enforcement and crime labs pay for algorithms which are often designed by private companies and they don't know how good they are. Uh, and there's, I mean, sometimes the position is, well, you know, we're just using this to generate leads. And so we're not actually introducing an ID in court. And so we don't need to know how reliable it is. We can just sort of use it to generate leads and then follow up later. Uh, but leads can turn into convictions. And unfortunately, there are often no rules for, for using technology. And we've seen labs and police embrace all sorts of off-the-shelf algorithms that are that are wholly untested. Facial recognition is exhibit A right now, and we've already seen people falsely arrested. We don't know if people have been falsely convicted, but there have been challenges. So far, when defense lawyers have said, give us the code, like we need to know how, how this algorithm works. The judges have said, no, you don't get to see that. And so it's the same problem. We don't allow discovery. We allow untested technology and forensics to be used. And unless we regulate those technologies will, will, again, we'll see all sorts of wrongful convictions and scandals, and it'll be an expensive mess to clean up. But, but so far, we've been so willing to kick that can down the road when it comes to the use of technology in the criminal system. Yeah. So just as a closing question, I'd like to ask, can you think of one lab, one operation to hold up as an example? This one is doing it right. Yes. Um, the uh, Houston Forensic Science Center is one that I talk about in the book, and it's a lab that started from rock bottom. I mean, the, the police lab in Houston was shuttered and, due to horrible quality control scandals, botched DNA tests, botched blood testing, serology. The whole place was closed. But when they reopened it, it was reconstituted as an independent lab. And, you know, we haven't talked about cognitive bias, but, you know, most crime labs, they, they really work for the police. They're funded as part of law enforcement. And there's a concern that, you know, detectives, police will be calling, asking for a particular test, uh, saying, you know, this person has a terrible criminal record. We need you to look at these prints right away. All sorts of ways that being seen on the same team as the bias. police. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Part of it just may be your role. You feel like your job is to catch bad guys, but some of it may be really specific. Like you're told all kinds of biasing information about the person that you're investigating. So there's a lot of good reasons for a lab to be independent, but even independent labs, if they have terrible quality control, it's the same way as like, you know, public versus private hospital. Well, it could be that a private hospital is independent of the government and better, but maybe not. Maybe they do terrible work there and you have patients dying needlessly. Like you really need to have the quality control. Um, and so independence may make it easier to keep out the biasing information from police, but it's not necessarily going to give you solid evidence uh, if you're just doing the same stuff. Uh, there's a big scandal brewing right now in Washington, D.C. involving their firearms unit. And that lab may have been set up independent, but uh, serious problems with how they reported results and it seems like changed results in firearms cases. Well, in, in Houston, they, they saw things differently and they really invested in quality control. So about 5% of the work across the entire lab, across all the disciplines, involves cases that are a test where uh, you know someone in the quality unit knows what the answer is and can see whether the examiner is getting the right answer or not. And that means they can get a sense of how the 
work is going, whether there are errors being made, they can detect those errors in a way that it doesn't harm a real person. And there's a whole culture around error where errors happen. Any, anything that is done yes. that is human involves uncertainty. Like if you use a tape measure, there's uncertainty. No one is perfect at measuring their couch. I, I'm really bad at measuring couches, right? I, I, I might get it off by like an inch or so. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, so, and that's like, that's like really simple. It's a ruler. Well, uh, the idea is like error occurs, we measure it and we try to catch it where it doesn't harm anyone in, in a real case. And that's just part of the flow of work. They're constantly doing blind testing in the lab. And that's what that's what a real scientific lab does. And they're the only lab in the country that is doing that at scale. Some labs have sort of experimented with the idea and sort of dipped a toe in the water, which is really promising. Uh, but you know they've, they've carved out the resources to do it and they're actually doing it in a way that no other lab is in the country. They also have all of their quality reports online, all of their standards online. Everything is transparent, everything is online. You can see their case flow. If there are backlogs, you can see it. And, and there's just no, no lab like that. And it's, it's really kind of sad that, it, that, it, that we have like sort of one lab that is, is sending out a beacon in terms of like, this is how you act like a real scientific crime lab. Uh, other labs are just at most doing some real minor things around the edges. That's Brandon Garrett. He is the L. Neil Williams Professor of Law at Duke University School of Law, where he also directs the Wilson Center for Science and Justice. His new book is called Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. And we've got a link to it up on our website. Thanks a lot for being my guest a second time here on Criminal Injustice. Thanks again, David. It's a treat. Let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And the story of this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from the Law Prof blog and the ABA Journal News Online is Glenn Stevens III of Washington, D.C. All of us. Lawyers or anyone else have surely shared the impulse to tell those in authority just shove it. Go ahead, do your worst. We can hear this impulse captured years ago in the 1977 country song by Johnny Paycheck called Take This Job and Shove It. And it doesn't have to be a job, right? We just want to say, go ahead, it'll be a pleasure. A so-called customer service rep who is making your customer experience a nightmare? The bureaucrat at the DMV? Or the hospital that charges you five grand for the sheets in the operating room? We just want to say, shove it. But then there's exactly the opposite thing, too. How often do you get to have exactly the experience you want? on your terms, to have things just the way that you dictate them. And what about having both of these at the same time, together? Would that be great? Well, if the answer is yes, then Lawyer Stevens must be in heaven. You see, Lawyer Stevens was, note the past tense, 
was a member of the District of Columbia Bar, and there was apparently such a history between Lawyer Stevens and the D.C. Bar disciplinary authorities called the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, or ODC, that Lawyer Stevens had just had it. No doubt there are many details, perhaps even some interesting ones, along the way that led Lawyer Stevens to reach his point of no return. From the ABA Journal story, we learn that Lawyer Stevens received notice of unspecified ethics charges in April of 2017, stemming from his earlier representation of clients and himself in litigation. Almost a year later, here is how Lawyer Stevens responded to those charges by OCD in a March 2018 email, and I quote, Please don't kill trees, waste taxpayer resources, and ODC personnel on me. ODC has no credibility or legitimacy to me, or the drivel you generate. You are simply dishonest lawyers who do nothing to regulate dishonest lawyers and racists to boot. Rather than wasting time, money, and paper on your sophistries, please disbar me. Disbarment by ODC would be an honor to date, aside from competing in the triathlon world championships, my greatest honors are my Ph.D. from UCLA and my law degree from Bolt. But a disbarment letter from ODC will be framed and go up right alongside those diplomas. Please do me the honor of disbarring me. I will be so very, very proud. Close quote. Wow, okay. The ODC's hearing committee had a four-day hearing on the underlying allegations of ethical misconduct anyway. Lawyer Stevens didn't even bother to participate. The committee found that Stevens had engaged in a pattern of unethical advocacy and abuse of the judicial system. The committee recommended a long suspension from practice, but the D.C. Court of Appeals' own Board of Professional Responsibility recommended disbarment instead. It ordered Stevens to show cause why he should not be disbarred. That's the way they talk. Lawyer Stevens' reply instead, quoting here again from the ABA Journal, quote, He mailed the Office of Disciplinary Counsel and enclosed pictures of Flavor Flav from the group Public Enemy. The words, ODC is a joke, were written at the top. He also made new statements that ODC lawyers were unethical and racist. Wow, close quote. Wow again. So in the end... Lawyer Stevens seems to have pulled it off. He told off the man, and he got exactly what he said he wanted. The D.C. Court of Appeals, the district's Supreme Court, has disbarred him for good. We hope he does indeed feel honored. So for Lawyer Stevens, here's something we rarely say in this our own hall of shame. Congratulations, pal. Enjoy the feeling. Just don't try to practice law there 
ever again. Take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And with it, we wrap up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed if you haven't already. And share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's www criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave tab on our website and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling, and your brief question. Call 412 412- 407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Please remember, we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and you want to help do that, appreciate that support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris. I'll be back with you next time. I ain't working here no more. Take this job and shove it.